Hello, everybody. My name's Pete Liston, and this is the Military Mindset for Business pod. And today we're going to talk about business in a slightly different approach because for me, all of my business ventures um, have been from zero to one. So I've been able to create them, but I've had to start everything from scratch. Whereas there's many, many different ways that you can get into business. Um, you can do it our way, the zero to one. You can buy, you can franchise, you can you know, take whatever path is right for you. And today I'm talking to Bryce Turner from Klepper. G'day, Bryce. G'day, Pete. How's it going, mate? I'm good, man. Um, thanks for joining us today. But I want to unpack today your journey into business because you took a bit of a different path. But before we get into Klepper and who it is and what you do, just introduce yourself and uh, how was it you ended up in the military uh, sometime in the distant past? Yeah, yeah, mate. Um, pretty, I think for a lot of people, like pretty similar story to a lot of people, I think who joined the army. So pretty, um, pretty involved family history. So not only my grandparents, uh, but my, you know, a couple of uncles and aunties serving in across all the branches. Uh, and then that kind of gave me very much a, from childhood upbringing, sort of a, a respect for the military community. And then from about age 12 or 13, it was definitely, I want to, join the army um, specifically initially it was I wanted to be a pilot on the raft but then at age 17 when I sat the uh, initial medical for that I was already too tall my sitting height was too <laughs> tall uh, and then the aptitude test I wasn't quite up to scratch there so uh, yeah then it was basically across to the army and uh, into Royal Military College at the you know ripe young age of 18 um, yeah and that was that was pretty much why I wanted to join the army was I just kind of always did uh, and then found myself at Duntroon and yeah that was that was how I got in there yeah Man, one day I actually want to talk to someone who uh, is a RAF pilot and actually did it because I was the same, man. Like when I was going through high school, there was this magazine called Takeoff when I was growing up. And it was just all, you know, like jets and, you know, just fancy, like, you no, know, I used to memorize all of the, all of the F series and all of the MIG series. And you know, obviously like every kid, it was all Air Force, but for some reason, uh, yeah. we ended up with the Pongos, mate, uh, you know, in yeah, the green. That's right. um, so yeah. tell us about your, um, yeah, after you, mate. Yeah, I was just going to say, mate, for me, it was, it was Top Gun at the age of about 11 or 12. I was sitting there watching Top Gun. And I was like, yeah, I'd like to be a pilot. And yeah, uh, that was, yeah, like I said, that was my first foray into thinking I'd like to be in the, in the Defence Force of some capacity. Yeah. So you, you spent probably a good, must be decade-ish in the military. What was it like? Yeah, so four, 14 years overall, mate. Um, so the, the first part, obviously, Duntroon, again, pretty pretty standard experience there. I probably enjoyed myself a little bit too much at RMC. So mm -hmm. the career yeah. that I uh, that I envisaged at the age of 18 didn't really end up going in that direction initially. Uh, so core allocated to military police, uh, where, I, where I did a period of four years. And over consecutive 12-month periods, I kept trying to apply for core transfer across the infantry. Uh, eventually successful um, to core transfer at the end of my first year of captaincy. So I basically went all the way back to, to day one as a lieutenant. Um, so even, even right off the bat, I, that, that was my first sort of foray into, uh, like, like, I guess I'd say like not, not failure, but just not, not achieving what I'd initially envisaged mm. and it didn't really taste too, not too, too nice for me there. So that, that kind of, uh, definitely influenced where I'm at now, but overall, obviously, yeah, pretty positive experience in the defense force. So I definitely attribute a lot of the success I have now to attributes that I learned whilst um, serving in the, in, in the army. Absolutely. It's funny because when you get allocated to a core, so when you do military college, you, you basically turn up with no guarantee of what job you're going to do at the end. And, uh, you know, my business partner, um, Matt Mosley, who most people that know me know him, uh, he also wanted to crack on with infantry, but because of his uh, love of, you know, uh, dare we say, Mooseheads and uh, Thursday nights, Hour of Power. Yeah, right, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> 
uh, you know, it, it led him down the path of Transport Corps, which was actually a blessing in disguise. Um, what did, you know, being a military policeman teach you uh, for what you're able to use later on in your infantry career? Yeah, so a lot, actually. So the first thing, um, when I arrived in, in, in the military police, it was 2008. So all of the soldiers in the military police in 2008 were, were NCOs. So um, from day one, that my youngest soldier was 25 and I was 19 at the time. So I already had an older cohort of soldiers. And administratively they were again administratively the, the best soldiers i ever had there was no there were never any disciplinary issues i didn't have to sit down and talk to them and guide them and counsel them through their life obviously as a 19 year old i would probably have been pretty ill-equipped to do so anyway but they were excellent soldiers um from, from again that, that admin and management point of view what that meant was not having to focus on a lot of that sort of stuff i got to focus on a lot of the other things which actually are quite important about um being an officer so rather than it just being about you know, maintenance of discipline, you're actually needing to organise training for your soldiers. You need to look at what the next evolution is of what you're going to be trying to accomplish and doing that. So by the time I actually did get around to becoming an infantry officer, all of the stuff that you spend the first three years learning, I'd already learned. Yeah. And I was, so I was, I would say from that point of view, on day one, um, when I did get to the infantry battalions, I was I'm much better prepared than I would have been if I was 19. So by the time I did core transfer, I would have been, I think, 25 or so, or 24 or 25. Um, and so I was much better placed there that on, on day one, I didn't have to worry about learning what dot point briefs were or, or quick assessments were or any of that sort of stuff. I already knew all that. Um, so from day one, I could focus again on that. There was no, there was no learning curve for admin. It was straight into, all right, how can we actually train better? How can we, how can I lead better? How can I help, how can I help these soldiers to actually be the best that we can possibly be as a, as a cohesive unit? So yeah, definitely prepared me very, very well for day one as a lieutenant. Who would have thought? Yeah. Yeah. Well, mate, I'm interested that you've dropped this word train in there a couple of times into the conversation because training is going to be a big part of your life uh, through your military and into your um, into your career building enterprise. Um, what Tell us about the training that you conduct and how you became a good trainer whilst you were in the military. Yeah, absolutely. So for, for me, it was it's critical. So um, depending on where you sort of focus your time and your effort in, in army, I think you can go, there's a number of ways you can go as uh, as an officer, as an NCO, regardless of the career, sorry, non-commissioned officer, uh, regardless of the career part, pipeline you take, I think there's a number of things you can focus down on. Um, I think for me, the most critical one is, is is training. Now, whether that's just that that bias for action, that bias for advancement and continual bettering of the, the, the unit or the organisation, I'm not sure. Uh, but that's definitely where I skewed most of my time. Like I, I wanted to make sure that my people were basically either at the range or they were doing PT or they were doing combatives or they were down, like when this is at eight, nine, where they had um, training rooms downstairs or they were downstairs and they're actually either teaching themselves, you know, one of the best ways to learn is to teach or they were sitting there and learning from their peers about, you know, um, just even doing things like just going through um, infantry minor tactic, but in, you know, on, on map boards or going through, you know, TOE, sorry, weapons handling drills or conducting navigation theory, just something, you're always training something so that your downtime uh, is minimised. And for infantry especially, um, not, not to say that they don't have a day job, but, you know, if, if, you're, if you're transport, you know, you're, you're probably coordinating movement of things to and from exercise as, as a live day-to-day -day work job. If you're in, uh, if you're in signals, and you're, you know, one, you know, one SIG regiment. You're running the signals network for the for the deployed land force and the at-home land force. So you, you have from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. or you know 7:30 till 4 or whatever. You have a job. 
infantry, you don't necessarily have a day-to-day role. Like you, you, you obviously have a role when you're on exercise or you're on operations, but in, in between those periods, there's there's no defined thing that you need to get after. So it's pretty much up mm. to the commanders of the infantry teams to be as proactive they can in using that time to make the team better. Which is what that's where I, I basically keep going back to training. Training makes you better. I don't necessarily think sitting there and doing lots of admin is going to make you better, um, but I definitely think lots of training, getting out and getting amongst it will always, yeah, always yield a positive result. It's an interesting point because for me as a RAMI officer, which is the Royal Australian Electrical and Mechanical Engineers, all of my soldiers were tradies. Uh, well, basically all of them were had some kind of expertise or skill that I wasn't. So there is the mentality of soldier first, um, but in infantry, it's not only soldier first, it is just soldier. So that's, that's, right, that's yeah. what you do. That's all you do every day. You come to work and you just soldier. Um, now, one of the things that I always talk about with military mindset is I go through it, the five P's. It's it's about purpose. It's about planning. It's about platforms, you know, people and process. But really this process one, I'm really interested in because process is about consistency and consistency for me means how do we capture excellence and repeat? So this fundamental pillar of training for me is all about, you know, raising the level of the team and building that a higher baseline than we've ever had. It's, one of the things that really surprised me uh, when I got into the military was just the sheer emphasis on upskilling and just literally you all you do, unless you're on operations, is train. You train and train and train and you learn and learn. And the level of professional acumen and the level of professional development is just on, a, on a, an amazing cycle. I've never had a, uh, an exposure in any organization where they were so focused on me being better and my team being better. And I think, tell us about what that's like, what life is like in that respect in the infantry. Yeah. Oh, so that, that's a good one. So I think it, it's a real, it's a juggling act between training and obviously the, the administration side. And, and, and as an officer, unfortunately, your time's not all out at the range or up at the, uh, up, up on the mat doing combatives. It's still definitely, you've got to focus on the administering and making sure that all of the procedural stuff and all the governance is available, but it's finding that balance. So um, I think it's easy as an officer to sit there and you, you kind of, you do up your weekly or your fortnightly training program and you shift that off to your, your, your you know, your NCOs. So either your corporals or your sergeants, so either the section commanders or the, or the base of the platoon second in command, um, you shift it over to them and then they, they execute. And then it's really, really easy to just get bogged down in the governance and just sitting there and just, you know, again, doing quick assessments or doing platoon commanders notebooks where you're monitoring the performance of your soldiers or, you know, doing risk assessments for on a future activity. Um, what I would say is it, it, it takes a lot, like, actually takes a lot of discipline to step out of the office to try and prioritise the, the effort you're doing um, because, yeah, it can get really comfortable in that office just sitting there behind your computer and, you know, typing away to actually get out and be be a, be a part of the training and, and not just being a part of the training, but understanding that your job is not just to be on the tools, but enable your, your soldiers to get on the tools. So what, what can you do? What what sort of procedures can you remove to enable training to be conducted easier? And just a very, very quick story here. Um, one, one example of that was um, in 2017, when I was a second commander Bravo company, one of the things I did was actually organize like standard range booking. So once a week, they're at the range. Um, there was a like an accelerated way, like a single A4 page that an NCO could sign, uh, could fill out the OC signs. They could go and they could run range practices at section level. They could draw ammunition out of the queue store. So normally it's a big drawn out process to get ammo. We held a small quantity and we were able to hold a small quantity in our queue store. Just think things like that. Um, 
that took time to get that set up. That probably took, you know, six months of me working to try and put all the processes in place, but that enabled section commanders then to be able to just say, let's go up the range. There's a standard booking on a Tuesday afternoon. So yeah, that, that's an example, sorry, of um, trying to do that at, for the team. So are you leveraging your position to enable the team a bit better? I love it. I use that as uh, the analogy I use for that is the work hard once mentality. You can either do something the same over and over and over again and just get frustrated with their result, or you can actually deliberately apply a work hard once mentality to focus on process to actually look to capture consistency and you know to really drive ways that whether it be through tempo, the ability to just get things done, you know, cut out that red tape. I'm, I'm going to come back to this training point again and the ability to take a group of people to a level that collectively they've never been before. It happens in all of the different cores in the military, whether they be, um, you know, regardless of the job, the rank, the skill or whatever. But for me in particular, in the infantry, the, the ability to draw a group of people back who are in that combative role uh, and raise them to a new level, it must be a pretty, I, I believe, special experience and the ultimate in what you know, raw command is like as a soldier. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If it's if it's done right, it's it's an awesome feeling. If you manage to, like I said, achieve that balance between, um, or like developing the organization and administering the organization, I think it's 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 it is really really hard. And I'm, um, I think there are people who do it very very well, and there are obviously people who don't do it quite as effectively. But it's one of the trickiest things to accomplish is actually how do you take it the entity that you're in that you have the command authority for? How do you take it from where it was and and make sure that it's bettered by your presence, basically. And um, like a really, really good example of that for me was, so 2017, back to that company, to IC Bravo company, um, that was like a highlight of my career. So that was well, champion champion company, champion battalion um, in the brigade, um, like commendations all around because between myself uh, and a couple of the NPOs in the company and the OC, we basically implemented, um, so we implemented the enhanced combat shooting course into the brigades, the SEM brigade, as well as the army combative program into the brigade. And that was all led from Bravo Company 6 RAR. So that was a really, really good example for us of um, the, actually the positive effect you can have to do what most soldiers want to do. You know, mo most soldiers, even most officers didn't join the army to write decision briefs and to sit there, you know, doing section commander notebooks or anything like that. Most soldiers joined to, to train, at least in the initial part. Um, yeah. Most of them are there to train. They're there to get better. They're there to, you know, have the fun playing with the explosives, etc. If you do join the infantry, but the point is, you're you're there to be to, again to be part of a team, like a really really tight cohesive unit that you're, you're not going to experience anywhere else. Um, not not to that same level. Obviously, you, you you'll get cohesiveness, but it's it's a, it hits differently. Um, and that's what most people join the army or defence force for. They don't they don't join for the admin. They they join for the output. They join for the purpose, and they join for the team. And so to be able to actually do that, like that's why 2017 for me was. High point of my career, yeah, definitely. Mm. One of the things I'm always fascinated about is fascinated about is the is the correlations or how you know military mindset does apply to business. And you, you mentioned before, you know, administering administering or governing the organization. And I, I already feel, you know, you know, being in business for several years now, how that directly applies back. You know, we've got to do our our governance. We've actually got to do our accounts, get our bass in on time. There's you know, there's revenue and relationship generating activities, and then there is administrative activities. But by delivering uh, a high level of process, we can actually reduce the level of administration. But particularly, again, um, from the team's perspective in training, one of the things that I found really interesting in the military was that training and doctrine is only the launch pad of what we actually do. It's the collective learning 
that allows us to be able to take advantage and maneuver in different situations because we don't have to relearn a significant body of work at a time an event occurs. How have you um, been able to see this work in the military, that, that launch pad of training leading you into somewhere you didn't actually foresee was possible? Yeah, no, no, a- a- absolutely. So I always go back to the adage that doctrine is basically a skeleton and then it's sort of SO- so standard operating procedures and the tactics, techniques and procedures, so SOPs and TTPs of your teams um, is sort of that muscle and, and it expands on what is the skeleton. So it's, you know, guide rails versus rules sort of thing. Um, but yeah, so there plenty of examples. And again, harken back to that 2017 where um, individual at the individual level, we didn't really get to focus too much at the company level just due to where we were in the training cycle. Uh, but at that individual level, um, you know, we saw lots of effects in terms of, uh, I think, again, morale, super high, retention, um, higher. Guys were actually getting in, um, getting in at the, you know, getting into those, 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 like those real martial skills that they actually learned. So um, shooting got better, obviously. Um, combatives got better. Well, it was the first, basically the first uh, in, utilization at, at mass outside of so, uh, Special Operations Command for things like the combatives programs in a number of years, like, Everyone remembers the everyone, but people who were served remember if you were around in 2007, you remember the military self-defense and yeah. that kind of style. Obviously, army combatives went in a bit of a different direction. Um, but that's an example of where I, I think from so I did nearly I did nearly I did 14 years, still technically reserved, but I don't really pray. But I did 14 years. And in that time frame, like I said, I think that the, the skill set of the individual soldiers definitely started improving from around that 2016 period, just, just in terms of access to training, access to resourcing, um, access to just different training styles and methodologies. Uh, they started bringing things, you know, like instead of it just being um, learned by observing or, you know, it became more learned by doing and instead of feedback by just, um, you know, this is what you did right, this is what you did wrong, it became, the, you know, more the Socratic technique. So it's more asking about how, you know, how you came to the decision that you did. So it's more internally derived learning. So just all those sorts of things meant that by the end of that sort of that, again, I go back to 2017 because it was when all this sort of had been going in since about 2013, but it was 2017 it really started to get institutionalised that I saw anyway. Um, and it just meant that the standard of the soldier individually became much better. And also I just found that they were just so much more motivated because, again, the number of years in the infantry, but, yeah, just the level of motivation, eb- eb- you know, ebbs and flows and definitely um, was waning a bit that I was seeing. Um, but, again, from that sort of 2016-17, that's what I definitely, when, when guys just started, to be able to get out there and just get back to those basic skills. That's when it started to go up. Yeah. I'm really interested in this from a team's perspective, because we know in business, one of the biggest forms of wastage is presenteeism. And I think this is very much linked to morale yeah. is the fact that, you know, we just turn up or from an infantry soldier's perspective, you, you just kick and breezeway time. You know, just waiting for the boss to come up with something else for you to do rather than being able to take a proactive, you know, lead in your own development, whether whether that be through the junior NCO you know, perspective or not. But in business, you know, billions and billions of dollars are wasted by people who just turn up and they're just going through the motions every day. So, you know, you being the leader, being able to get down into the call face, spend time with your people, train them, nurture them, teach them. You know, I can really see how this has been, uh, you know, a definitive catalyst in your business journey. But mate, I just want to unpack, you had the pleasure or opportunity to deploy in 2015. Tell us about that experience. Yeah, so that was um, yeah, a stint on force protection element four to Afghanistan in 2015. So um, yeah, basically did the theater reconnaissance. So you go over a little bit before the, the, the main body of soldiers. So before everyone goes over, so I went over in February 
came back and we ran through our mission rehearsal or mission readiness exercises, sorry, where you basically, you, you get more specific training to what your role is actually going to be while deployed. So everyone has a baseline level of some capacity. Um, and, you know, that might be in, in the Australian environment, for example, you conduct your mission readiness exercises in the more specified environments. And this is from going to Afghanistan. Um, and yeah, the role we performed over there was the guardian angel role. So that was yeah, resulting from a number of the green on blue um, incidents. So where an Afghan soldier um, targets uh, a coalition forces member, uh, they instigated policies that required people to, their sole responsibility was looking out for the, um, basically looking out for, you know, activity that might lead to a green on blue. So there's people whose job was to focus on mentoring the soldiers to um, mentoring the Afghan army partners while we're over there. And then our role was actually to, instead of watching the training is going on, being watching out to make sure that there's nothing that's going to basically uh, yeah, ha have an impact on training. In this instance, somebody trying to attack the coalition trainers. Because 2015, the overt combat role, I believe, had wrapped up by then. We were in this sort of no man's land of, hey, yeah. we're going home sooner or later. You know, we told you ten we told you in 2011 that we want to go home, but uh now we're just almost waiting for this 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 exit. And we all we all know what happened with the with the actual exit, but what was the the vibe or uh, you know the operational tempo at that time? Yeah, so it was interesting. So no one really told the Taliban that you know, um, warlike operations had ceased in 2015. So that, yeah, that was the end of 2014 was the formal end to the, um, to the, yeah, war, so they don't call it warlike operations, but it was the formal end to the conflict as, as it was and op operations flipper transferred over to operation high road. Um, mm -hmm. There was still definitely things occurring. So we like, um, not our, our, our platoon was a number of things that occurred. So firstly, we were deployed separately from the remainder of the combat team so that they went to kabul so two platoons went up to kabul and my platoon we went down to kandahar so we were immediately were separated from our chain of command which was awesome as a uh, as a young platoon Free commander. <laughs> yeah which was great um that part was good and so yeah we, we went down there there were still things that were occurring around us but like we were lucky that nothing directly impacted us but there were still you know vehicle born ieds and motorcycle born ieds and um, you know, indirect attacks and stuff like that, but just nothing ever directly against us. So whether that was the Taliban had a policy of not targeting Australians, I'm not sure, but basically it was always like a US convoy or a um, like another partner force, or sorry, another um, coalition partner convoy that would, you know, would be getting hit. Or, you know, instead of, we, we would be supposed to go to a place and we didn't go there and, you know, something happened at the place when we weren't there. So yeah, we were lucky, um, but there was definitely still things occurring. So it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, just, feet up and and nothing going on but yeah nothing nothing like it was probably three or four years previous but i would say there wouldn't have been too much difference between 2014 through to um 20 you know probably 2017 2018 sort of thing then it then it dynamic shifted a bit so you've been uh, fortunate enough to you know, command soldiers and operations which is you know truly a privilege for for anyone that's had the experience you've now come back to australia um where do we start looking at this point of you know i love the military but What's my next chapter? How did you start? Yeah. When were the seeds sown here for what's coming up next? Yeah, so I basically, I, I went straight to Duntroon from school, so I didn't attend university. In 2014, I started an undergraduate um, in training and development, strangely enough, mostly because I could get like, I think it was a 60% recognition of prior learning for the for the undergrad. Uh, but that was me just being like, A, I want to expand and, and professionalize myself a bit. But it was at that stage, I sort of started thinking, e even if I... And I, I still to this day love the army, but e even if I 
didn't, you know, even if I fell out of the love of the army and I wanted to leave, that that was one way of exiting. But it kind of dawned on me that there's a few ways you can actually end up leaving the army and not all of them are um, voluntary. Yeah. Uh, so whether that's administratively or disciplinary because I do something incorrect and I'm forcefully withdrawn from the army or medically I'm, you know, forced to retire, it, it, don't, it basically, it's not a guarantee that you're going to be there. So at that point in time, I was like, okay, well, I probably need to look at some form of transferable skill set outside of just at that stage, seven or eight years in the army um and i wanted to make sure that if that decision was forced upon me um or i made that decision i wanted to have not to have value but i wanted to have utility straight off the bat to make sure that when i did transition um it was a smooth transition on the way out so i wasn't concerned and you know at, at that point in time that i would be fighting for survival if i was to leave the yeah. army for whatever reason or by whatever means I am, I am just smiling a little bit that uh, even at this time in your career, potentially, is that young, uh, the Bryce at, you know, potentially a bit of a troublemaker, you know, the fact that it is yeah. possible that one day I may even have a disciplinary exit here, you know, like. Yeah, yeah. well, I, I wasn't <laughs> really by, by that stage. So if you, if you go back to 2007 at Duntroon, yeah, I was right next to Matt Mosley <laughs> at Mooseheads like, with absolute certainty. And that's why I ended up at. MPs, I thought that I was going to be carried through by my field reporting because, you know, I was yeah. one of those traditional, you know, barracks shit, but outfield, I generally performed pretty well. Um, but yeah, so but by that stage, by about 2014, I've, like I said, I've taken a few licks. I've had a few yeah. failures by that stage. And it's definitely, um, uh, not if, if, if it didn't humble me, it definitely made me realize like I, I have, I need to, you know, straighten up a little bit. So by that stage, I wasn't worried about necessarily getting disciplined out because of partying too much or something. I was more concerned with, um, you know, maybe having a run in with someone down the track or just, just something. And I just didn't want to, I just didn't want to leave my transition up to chance or up to man, fate. So um, important, man. Oh, I, yeah, I, I, if, if, if we get, if we get to it, I'll be, I'll be able to harp on this a lot because I think it's the number yeah. one key to transition is it's not going to occur necessarily when you want it to. Um, and even when I did eventually transition, um, that point in time, I wasn't, I wasn't transitioning entirely out of you know like I, I started to hate my job it was still very much a um i loved my job and i loved my job but there was other impact other, other things started to impact my my decision making a little bit yeah well for me like with my transition is i actually started the business from about two years when i was in the military actually even three years when i had my first you know utter dud of an idea that just uh blew up in smoke but by the time i had left the military the business was actually up and running full speed ahead. So that, that, you know, that you know, preparation phase of, of getting into the, what's the next step early enough was really, you know, pivotal in the success of the transition. Um, I just want to, what, did you think that you were going to be a business owner, you know, entrepreneur is a bit of a wanky word, to be honest, enterprise business owner, what it's all the same thing, but are you starting to have the inclination here of, Hey, I want to do my own thing or was it just looking at the next thing at this stage? So it was, I kind of had an idea of roughly where I wanted to get to. So if, you, if you're still talking 2014, so I might just, if it's all right, I might take it forward a couple of years. So 2018, I do CTMC. So the Capability and Technology Management College. Uh, basically, it teaches you how to become a capability manager. So delivering defense projects or managing a portfolio of um, complex assets or something. It's a 12-month master's program. Um, even at that stage, I was still, I was still probably 80%, 85%. I'm staying in the army for at least another yeah. 10, 15 years. Um, but yeah, so when when it did come time to actually end up like making that decision, so in in about 
2019, 2020 is, is when I sort of started thinking, okay, what do I actually want? And what are my, what, what, what are my values? And what do I truly hold dear to my heart? And I sat down with my wife and um, we had a one-year-old at the time. And basically I went through for me, what is, what, what is, I'm not going to quite call it a good life. Cause that sounds a bit wanky, but what, what does like personal success for me look like? And I think for some people it might be oh, earning $900,000 a year or, you know, li- being able to live in Thailand and work completely remotely or whatever. But for me, it was pretty much um, independence and flexibility of controlling my time. So I wanted to, I wanted to own how I control my time and it was, I wanted to own my own destiny. So for good or bad, success or failure, I wanted to be the one that had control over, over the arc of my, my life basically. Mm-hmm. And there, and then basically that, at the same point in time, my next posting post, my post capability management job was going to be back into the infantry battalions. And the last time I was in infantry battalions, that was 19 months out of 24 months away from home sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and I just didn't want to be away from my family. So it kind of came for me that the, that the pillars of success for me post-separation was um, yeah, controlling time, controlling destiny, and maximizing time with my family. So that 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 was what ended up being the, the motivating factor for me, leaving and ultimately deciding. At that stage, I had a five-year plan. I had a 10-year plan, or not necessarily, sorry, I didn't have a plan. I had like a five-year objective or like milestone and then 10-year milestones. And at, at the five-year one was business ownership of some description. Um, at that stage, I didn't know whether it would be entrepreneurship through acquisitions, obviously the pipe, pipeline ended up going down, or if it was going to be um, just, you know, built by build or if it's going to be franchise or what. I, but I knew that at the five-year mark, I wanted to own my own thing. Now, let's let's unpack that and explore because, as I mentioned in the start, is I started businesses from scratch, you know, from zero to one. And I've got to admit, it's whilst the process is... Somewhat enjoyable of being creative, it is very time consuming, and yeah. you know, time and resources put into this. There is, you know, we left a lot of time and money on the table by experimenting and learning, but you went down a totally different path, and and it's actually led you to a point of in full maturation of the process, potentially a faster way to get to the end point than just saying, "Hey, let's," and and potentially a safer and more protected from an income perspective method with a young family as well to business ownership. Can you just unpack how you transitioned out and got into that first step? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, so when I was transitioning, having those three key things in my head about what I wanted my future to look like, I was definitely being relatively selective with roles um, that in terms of what I was going to accept. So there's that, and this is another thing as well. This is where transition is actually like bloody hard. So I, I must have I must have applied for sixty or seventy odd jobs. At that stage, I had two master's degrees, an undergraduate degree, and I based I, I'd been running tranche one of a nearly three billion dollar defense project. I still found it hard to get job like to get a job outside of army. So like that, that this is why I do harp on this preparation is is everything in your transition because I, I, I out of that sort of sixty or seventy applications, it probably came down to uh, four or five tangible offers. Um, but the one question that none of the five that I kind of ultimately down-selected to could tell me was what does my transition in your organization from in like basically customer engagement, because I knew that the, and we can talk about this as well a bit later, but that whole one, one foot forward thing, I knew that the simplest option for me and where I would be most readily uh, able to assist is something like the professional services industry, yeah. build back to, to defense in some capacity um, where they could basically bill, bill me out on a day, right? And I, and I knew that because I've been working with contractors in my last role. Um, but I always ask them, how do I get from that client engaging side to the corporate side where I actually go more towards the managerial skill set versus the delivery? And none of them really had a good answer to that. 
the job that I ended up going to um, with with Klepper, the entity that I ended up purchasing, it was basically come in, um, be mentored by by the, the existing owner, John Davidson, um, be mentored by him from a business point of view with an aim to eventually have some form, and the, the, the finer points of this weren't worked out, but some form of, um, at that stage, would be managerial control handed over. Uh, and then, and that was sort of like it. So at the very least, at the end of two or three years, I would have had a, f- a few years of running a business to uh, then start my own thing um, or go back to another entity and say, you know, I want to work and this is my experience. I'm not going to be in project delivery. I actually want to come in and be a, you know, uh, some form of, you know, like lower level manager in your in your company, but learn on the corporate path to to a higher position. Hang on, can I just unpack this for a sec, right? So yeah, you've gone for a job. Did you see this job in the paper or online or recommended or referred? The, the one that I ended up with? No, no, it was all yeah. network, mate. So, so of network. the 70, yeah, of, of, all, of the 70 um, applications I put through, 50 of them through HR didn't even, like, yep. didn't even get through first round screening at HR, which I found absolutely perplexing. And then, yeah, and then it was the ones that I actually ended up getting some some form of more tangible offer through. That was an exclusively network. Gotcha. That was um, just people that I'd met in my previous, you know, two or three years as I was looking to transition. Uh, and yeah, talking to them about what what work looks like outside of the army. And then the, the last one that I ended up taking, Klepper, um, that was basically me introduced to the owner by one of the people who was in the team that I was working with. So that's how gotcha. that kind of came about. So now you're in the job interview and it's like, uh, to sort of paraphrase, hey, mate, I'd love to work with you, but I also want to take over your business one day and potentially uh, have a leadership role here. Um, how, yeah. how, did, how did sort of that go down? Because it's an interesting thing because if someone said that to me, like in my interview, a part of me would be like, well, wow, this is interesting. You know, like I would actually love someone with that level of aspiration because yeah. I remember, oh man, I worked on a farm once before I joined the army. It was a big lily farm in New South Wales. And I wrote this guy after being there for six months, a three you know, thousand word document on how we could get some efficiencies in the business and open new markets and this and that, whatever. And I gave it to him. And about a week later, I was like, you know, hey, what'd you think about thing? And he, he basically said, uh, excuse my language. Who the fuck do you think you are, mate? This is my business. I'll do it my way. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, and basically that, that was his response to me. So for me, it was massive deflating and I was, you know, out of there within weeks. Um, yeah. But to, for, if I found that people, Hey, if there's anyone out there like Bryce that wants to take my business over for me, come knock on my door, man. I would love you to come in and, uh, and me to yeah, change yeah, this into yeah. something else, man. I love it. Yeah, so at that stage, that wasn't uh, so that the interview, uh, the interview just occurred at Capital Brewing. So you know, it's over a beer sort of thing, and it was yeah. more. Um, so JD John Davidson at that stage, he was sort of. Oh, I'm just going to put this as well, as well as I can. So basically, he he had a lot of a lot of things that he was working with in, in his personal life, and he didn't really have time to grow the business. Yep. So it came more as I need someone who's going to enable me or to help grow the business was was sort of that first chat. It wasn't really, I never directly said like, hey, I want to take over your business and buy, but I definitely made it clear that I wanted to be in the managerial side of the business, not the the delivery side of the business. Um, And then we just spoke basically about, like I said, my family circumstance, which is very important to me. So for the first six months, I actually just, I I came on part-time. So that was my, you know, clearing headspace from defense, as well as, you know, clearing out all the conflict of interest management stuff, um, you know, the time away from the defense before you can sort of come back into defense. So I worked, I worked part-time, um, you know, a couple of days a week and I got to do the whole daddy daycare thing, you know, a couple of days a week. So that for me was awesome. That enabled my wife to go back to work full-time. Um, 
prior to us having our second child. So there was like a number of benefits, um, like a number of like benefits from that from that point of view. Um, but yeah, the, the, un, the unspoken part of the conversation was different, different definitely, you know, either I'm going to be retaining your organisation and then eventually some form of ownership, or um, I, I'll be there for the three or three or so years to, to learn everything I can from you and to help you you grow your business out a bit more, and then I'll probably look for something else. Yeah. The, the the true sort of conversation around the ownership transfer came probably like 18 months later. Uh, by that stage, we'd grown our we like we'd grown our staff by a few. We'd definitely grown, and we'd won a couple of pretty big contracts. And so, a lot of this work was me. Well, we're leveraging JD's network because he was one of the most connected people I know in terms of network. So a lot of it was leveraging his network to expand out. But a lot of like the, you know, the sort of raw BD stuff that that was me in there, you know, responding to tenders, etc. And it was definitely pl not playing on my mind. But I definitely knew that I was creating a lot of value for the company. That if if we were to in the future, maybe three, five years, whatever, when when JD eventually did want to do a hard retire, we were going to look at business take like takeover or um sort of business purchase. Oh, not not definitely not doing myself a disservice, but basically like the, the, the there's there'd be a direct future cost to me based on performance in the now. So yeah, that's when I kind of had the conversation with him that that why don't we you know, I know this is sort of like an unspoken part of what we've been doing, but why don't we now start formalizing something and actually getting something down? Um, and then either uh, either an equity share arrangement um, or some, you know, vendor finance model or something, but, and, and, you know, enacting a buyout. And uh, yeah, basically we came to a, to an, a, an amount and, you know, the, the, the acceptable conditions and yeah, enacted the, enacted the buyout. Mate, I love it. Um... And look, I wasn't being facetious before. You know, if, if anyone yeah. out there wants to come take my company over one day, like come come on, let's have a chat. If you want to get in and work hard and and you know take take a stake, we'd love to find the right people to to get on board. We I got I got a thousand, dude. I got a thousand ideas that I want to pursue in my short time on this planet. So yes. there's plenty yeah, of things yeah. on there's plenty of things in our you know. And one of the the earliest uh, one of the earliest I guess how can I say this phrases that was the catalyst of our success was when I joined Matt in business, I was very much of the mindset that instead of keeping all of nothing to myself, I prefer to share something of substance. Hmm. Um, so that was, you know, that was our initial mindset and where it's been the catalyst for our success. Let's just talk a little bit. Tell us what Clepper is because we've been talking about training, training, training. We've talked about your course where you learned how to uh, manage and understand contracts within the defense space. It's all really been leading, funny enough, to Klepper. Tell us a little about what Klepper does. Yeah. So there's there's a few arms to Klepper, which is I guess I, I actually struggle to articulate what I do for a job now. But basically, there's Klepper Professional Services. So that firmly sits within the defence. It, it has done other government agency work previously, and that we do still do a little bit, but it's predominantly defence professional services. So that's sort of project management, systems engineering, logistics management, contracting, procurement. Those sort of um, those sort of like skill sets that are they take a while to grow up like to grow to a high capacity and they got a pretty large training burden so it's the stuff that defense isn't necessarily able to generate um at mass itself so it contracts out so there's that arm of the business the second one is arm of the business is the klepper training academy um that is a registered training organization so that one is definitely in that startup sort of stages so we've basically built that one out from scratch that was a, one of my activities uh, that i did as part of klepper when jd was still the head honcho was actually the acquisition of that business. So that was a shell RTO. Basically, it exists. It has 
um, items on scopes or constraints qualifications, but it doesn't necessarily have anything else. So you, you, what you're basically buying is you're buying the effort it would have taken you to get it to that stage. So to get registration from ASK, from the regulator, um, ASCA, as well as to um, have what's called your, your post-initial audit. So you, you get registered, then two years later you get audited. But our, our two criteria was it was registered and it was and it cleared that because you, you can make changes to your scope of delivery and things like that. So we we did the purchase of that, but that wasn't that wasn't trading, that wasn't doing anything. So we've now we're now building that up. So that's now got uh, four full time employees and a couple of um, casual employees and some subcontracted trainers, and that's now very firmly in that sort of startup phase. And we're expecting that to get to the break even. Um, Revenue-wise, probably the end of next year. So that 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 is, um, and this is going back to what you said, that zero to one. That was definitely a, I'm going to say it was zero point five because it had the uh, the regulatory approval, but getting that stood up has been a, like a vast investment of just time and resources. Um, yeah, a lot of resources. But that'll that'll get to that point. So they're, they're the two the two business units that we're playing with at the moment. Um, yeah, broadly. So targeting that defence. Uh, but we also do a little bit of um, a little bit of industry engagement and that sort of subject matter expert advice. We do that to other companies, lots of companies as well who are looking to break into the defence market. So yeah, that, that definitely sort of like that that intellectual skill side of the house versus a product delivered uh, product service. So what's your current role in Clipper? Uh, manage. I sit as the managing director over Clipper and the Clipper Training Academy. Um, I'm yeah. Still billable under Clepper, but that'll conclude at the end of this year, and then I can actually go off the tools and run it. So yeah, it's, 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 I'm finding it's quite difficult to run one startup, get another startup going, um, do a, a business in trading, being a full time deliverable, also doing uni and then trying to juggle having a family. So yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm starting to clear stuff off my plate, which is nice. One of the things that we've been able to use really well in development of new product and new direction in the business is the three, 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 five, and five shop mentality of army operations planning or military operations planning. So three, three is current operations. And for me in business, that is everything within the current revenue cycle. So we, you know, we bid for a job, we win the job, we deliver the job, we finish the job, we invoice the job and we do it again. Um, so that for me is current operations, everything that makes the business money. 3-5 is an acronym for future operations. And for me, this is everything just forward of that current revenue cycle. It could be my next big hire. It could be my next product launch. Right now, the effort I put into developing that component is not going to make me money today. But unless I do it today, it will never actually come to fruition in three, six, nine months time. Uh, and then we've got planning, which is five shop. And the planning is for me something that doesn't really occur uh, for over 12 months. So for us, you know, it could be an international expansion or potential restructure of a company or an M&A or something like that. So just being able to understand that, you know, as a you know, MD, as a sometimes solopreneur, you actually have to wear different hats of doing your current operations, say like, no, I've got to stop today and I've got to do something and dedicate some time on things that won't even come to fruition for months and months. Um, have you found these kind of basics in terms of you taking that military mindset into your business? Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. So you, you basically have to keep your business going. So obviously, as you've articulated, the 3-3 three, three stuff, that's that's important. But professional services as well, especially that 3-5 that, that becomes pretty critical. So i.e. what's, what's going to happen in that, I'd say, one, one, one contract term. So contract, you know, might be six months, 12 months or 18 months, but post post that, how... How's that, how's that person, you know, resources as a, as a terminology there, but how's that person going to be 
um, re-engaged and what's their method of re-engagement there? And, you know, do you even want to re-engage them straight away or do you want to, is that where you want to squeeze in some professional development um, or some leave, et cetera? So that kind of three, five, you definitely have to give consideration to. And then the five for us, that's literally the RTO, the RTO and then, you know, some some other the other ventures that we're going to start up with. That's 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 the five. That's that. If there was to be a strategic shock in defence or in training or in something else, how are we basically protecting ourselves at the enterprise level to make sure that we can wear that strategic impact relatively effectively? So that was the one, the, num, the number one motivating factor for getting into the RTO was we still want it, we still have all this stuff in defence, um, but if there ever was like a contractor reckoning, which I think we're probably pretty pretty deep in the middle of right now, what what are we doing to um, basically soften the impact of that so we don't have to do things like layoffs or you know decrease wages or decrease entitlements and, and stuff like that we can basically wear risk wear risk across multiple markets so the rto definitely still does defense stuff it still does um, workforce planning stuff it still does training evaluation training development but now we also have this whole entire other market which is a direct business to consumer market that we have to play in as well which brings its own challenges but we're getting that assurity and risk management across the enterprise versus just being siloed into one market Mate, I want to just get impact this little piece about how you you progressed into ownership from being an employee. So, what you were lucky enough, I guess, the first point, like finding a great wife, finding the great partner, and being selective about the right opportunity, is critical. You could have gone down any number of pathways and got you into a position potentially for more money, potentially for an easier lifestyle, but you had that goal of what you wanted. After you selected that right role and being patient enough, have you got any guidance for us in terms of how you managed with great respect to the to the current ownership, your involvement into the business and actually how to put these equity discussions on the table? Yeah, so JD was awesome. So I need to get that out as just a personal thank you to, to John Davidson. Like he was as, as as basically as excellent as a mentor you could have when transitioning out of defense. Like he's a... He's a very um, pragmatic and very selfless person. He helps, eminently helps people all within the veteran community transitioning or still serving. He's a very, very good advocate for people who are leaving the defence force. So from that point of view, it was made much simpler. Um, he's also, and he'll love me saying this, he's also a dogged old bastard. So trying to like, <laughs> and, 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 and rightfully so, you know, I'm, I'm a capitalist at heart and he's basically this is his sort of swan song prior to his retirement and his, you know, um, and, and a large inject to his um, retirement fund. So the negotiation, I, 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 there, were a few, there were a few conditions. So one was basically we, we never left a discussion angry. So even though it was, and again, this is, this comes back to, I was writing reports that JD was using in negotiations to be like, see, this is our contract value coming up. So it was, it was an interesting time, but it was always, it came back to, like I think understanding that I knew what he wanted, he knew what I wanted out of it. I also obviously had a personal relationship with him and his family and I wanted them to be enabled and I wanted them to have that success in their retirement um, whilst also enabling my life. And if anything, one of the biggest stakeholders I had to get across the line, as you'd probably imagine, was my wife. Um, yeah. And so it was buying, buying a business is really, really difficult to argue Um because you know, I could I could pull out financial reporting and be like, see, look, this 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 here says that we're making, you know, we're going to make money into the future. But I don't necessarily, you know, I'm not sure about your wife. My wife's not super interested in sitting down and learning about, you know, a profit and loss statement and how that aligns to a business a balance sheet. And you can show that it's trending in a positive direction, and you can afford to take on debt. Like, you know, she doesn't really she's quite busy herself. She doesn't really want to sit and 
sit and learn that um, or you know have it explained to her so what i the way i ended up articulating was i wasn't we weren't taking on this this risk um for financial performance what we're actually doing is buying a lifestyle so by that stage working from home get to do drop-offs and daycare pickups and i get to go to my daughter's daddy dancing days and i got to do all that sort of stuff so what we're actually doing we weren't buying a business we we're buying flexibility and like i said back to those three motivations for leaving that's what we're buying we're buying that that freedom um pretty much so that that in the end it was um quite a simple decision and then and then it just became about negotiating a dollar value um didn't really do anything too formal like you know EBITDA times three or any other form of business yep. valuation metric I, I just knew what contracts we had coming up and I knew how quickly I'd be able to pay down any debt encumbered and that was that was pretty much it and I wanted to make sure that um I, I, I just wanted to make sure that JD was getting him, him and his family were getting a fair deal uh, to make sure that they weren't going to be retiring and then wanting for, you know, resources a couple of years, couple of years later. So and that, I think we definitely came to a very, very equitable arrangement. Um, and yeah, it was good, but definitely that, that negotiation point, it's, it's, it was a good, it was a good, good sort of few months. It took us probably six months to get to the final, final amount, final conditions, final value. But you've come into the business, you've proven your worth, you've shown uh, that, getting you on board here can create a bigger pie. Just uh, I'll, I'll just, I'll come in and earn my slice of the pie. And ultimately it's this spirit of understanding that business is a fundamentally human activity. And yep. that particularly with our business partners, you know, it is that essence of win-win and can we create something here that we can actually win-win in. It's funny you mentioned your wife there is my wife is an immensely uh, intelligent and articulate woman. And she does, she takes, a fleeting interest in the business, but she's got a very attuned eye for risk. Potentially when I, when I'm sort of like, oh, I've got this great idea, or we're going to do this and that. And all of a sudden she seems to like think, you know, you, you just, uh, you're pushing the boundaries a little bit here. And then she'll just ask the right questions to prod. Uh, and it actually is, she's probably the hardest one I have to justify anything to in terms of my business. You know, yeah, dealings, but she just seems very attuned to probably, uh, you know, in terms of the way that my erratic brain can work. So, yeah. so like, like, like so I've, I've had thousands of business ideas and I'm currently at two that have managed to get through and then a third one. So, you know, out of all of my dumb, and they go everything from like small little inventions all the way through to, you know, big strategic impacting things like, and they run the full gamut and it's not necessarily my own thought process that cancels out the stupid ideas. So yeah, yeah and I, I definitely want to like reiterate that point much the same as yourself. Like my, my wife is a much smarter person than I am. Um, you know, uh, academically achieve much greater things than I. Um, but again, like just it takes time. And, and especially if you're arguing something from a, uh, a very data-centric, data-heavy point of view, like you can demonstrate, like it's, you know, it's like when you're arguing with a bank about taking on debt. It's just, yeah. It's, it's, show, it's show me the numbers. The numbers are the numbers I'm going to lay here. One That's of the things right, yeah. that I really like sharing about your experience and why I'm very passionate about you know, veteran entrepreneurship and veterans that running enterprise is... Now, being able to have a narrative around the kind of person that is involved in the business when you engage with a veteran community business. And I think you're a great example of that, you know, with somebody who has you know, a very, you know, driven and purposeful way that they've had their military career, the way that you've been able to achieve what you've done very deliberate through, deliberately through both your formal uh, training and both your self-education. But this is what you get from a veteran community business owner. Is someone that has this, you know, this suite of experience, this suite of, you know, life skills, but is now very deliberately uh, applying this focus in business, and it's something that, mm -hmm. mate, I just, I just love hearing these stories. Tell us I, um, what's next for Klepper, 
And yep. sorry, mate, after you. Oh, I was, was going to say, I was literally having this exact conversation last week with a bloke who's just about transition. Um, it's really, really difficult because I think the, 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 the attributes and the skill sets that set veterans apart, a lot of them look kind of tokenistic on a resume. Um, so example would be like works well under pressure. So if, if you put works well under pressure on your CV and just say you, you, you decide you're going to go for a hard pivot and you're not going to go and work the defense industry, you're going to go and become a, like, I don't know, you're going to go work in um, risk and analysis or sorry, just you're going to go work with uh, data analysis for a, a company. You've done some, you've done some um, economic study while you're still in, and now you're going to go work for a company um, completely independent of defense. You, you, you put something like, oh, I, I works well in like works well independently or works well under pressure. That, 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 that means different things. So if you're, if you're a 22 year old grad, who's going for the same position, you write works well under pressure. The way you demonstrate that is uh, when I was working at McDonald's, I, um, you know, some, I'm, not, I'm not trying to make light of McDonald's workers, but someone ordered 45 Big Macs and I had to task allocate to get these Big Macs made. You're talking about and this, this guy specifically, I was like, you're working well independently, working well under pressure is like deploying internationally with a small team of four people to do a really super specific task with strategic consequences, um, 7,000 kilometers from your one up commander. Like that's that's different. Like that's that's very very different. Um, that's not even the same. So the sentence looks the same. Work well independently and works well under pressure. But the the meaning is two completely different things. And it's translating the military context of that again. And I hate it because it does look super token. But they are the best. Like the best skills they bring, you know, innovation, like um, yeah, entrepreneurial attitude, innovation. They bring, you know, um, time, time pressure, like uh, ability to time pressure, like managing, managing teams, like building, forming and managing teams, strategic purpose and intent. All these things that read like, unfortunately, wank words are actually, they're, 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 they're different when it comes from a military background versus um, someone in, the, in an equivalent sector outside of army. And it's, 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 it's managing to actually articulate that effectively is, is, is super challenging because, if you if you're a HR, you know you're a hiring manager, and you're reading, oh yeah, this is Steve. Steve works well under pressure. Everyone works well under pressure. You know, what I mean, everyone everyone can put that on their CV. It's just yeah, yeah it's a, it's a difficult point to have to be able to argue effectively. The thing there that I love is that my biggest takeaway from everything is synchronization and orchestration of teams. Is how in a business, and it's something that I'm fastidiously focused on practicing what I preach in my own businesses, is how do we actually bring the right team members together. But how do we actually get them to basically orchestrate the effects of what they're achieving at the right time at the right place in business? And I think mm. this is one of the biggest things that we 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 work with in the military is that team focused on creating events and creating effects that actually matter to the outcome. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and doing that subconsciously. So, you know, again, anyone anyone can pick four people and put them in a team, but being able to just subconsciously and intuitively pick strengths and weaknesses and being able to balance them across your team to achieve the best effect that that's also a skill that again you, you do only learn in those sort of those high pressure environments which army and defense writ large are just excellent at creating is these little micro chasms of super high pressure just on mundane things it'll be a tuesday and you find yourself in some super complex position or super complex task and it's being able to actually say i've got 50 people to choose from these four are going to be the best for the task and you just do that rapidly and intuitively and that that's a skill that you can't teach that's just picked up through osmosis i love it mate tell us what's next for klepper and next for bryce yeah great question mate um so klepper itself we're basically focusing obviously we've got the professional services so we've got the our whole thing is finding people to fill jobs we're now going to 
go a little bit deeper into targeting the more more technical skill sets. So they're a little bit um, you just basically strengths and weaknesses of what our company can do. What we can do is target, recruit, and retain highly qualified people. What we can't do very well is target um, like people that are a bit lower down in terms of the job um, skill set and development, and then put them into a small team. I'll put them into a team and develop them internally. We can do that a little bit, but that's definitely better companies like uh, for doing that are the bigger ones that sit under the MFP, for example. So it's going to be targeting the the, the, the um, more people at the higher level and injecting them into those sort of critical workforce shortages. Then it's basically building out the RTO that becomes critical. And then obviously this third venture that we're about to kick off um, or we'll kick off sort of next year and into 2024, it's going to be sitting across that. And then for me personally, it's going to be slowly transitioning my managerial responsibility of each business unit across to another person. Um, I don't know, retire on a yacht or something. Yeah, mate, delegate. We've got to delegate to elevate. That's, uh, that's, right. you know, that's one of the core principles here. Well, mate, what we're going to do is I'm going to throw all of the links that anyone needs to get in touch with Bryce or we're getting Klepper in the show notes below. If you want to comment on this, if you like it, if you don't like it, if you've got any uh, you know, comments that you want to add, you can always just jump onto the YouTube channel and throw them into the comments where that we'll see them or we'll be able to reply back and give you our five cents. But, mate, thanks for joining us on the Military Mindset for Business pod today. And it's been a real pleasure to actually see someone who has you know, been able to take this take this vast set of skills and acumen that received out of the military training and really apply it into a into an amazing business delivering great results and leading great teams so mate thanks for joining us today all good mate no worries thanks for having me so brilliant um my name is pete liston thanks for listening to military mindset for business pod out